Hi, today we're going to talk about political satire. Uh, we're going to do that a little bit later with a scholar who's written a new book about it, but we're also going to talk to a practitioner, a licensed practitioner. Do not get your political satire from someone who is not a licensed, accredited practitioner. No one could be more so than Samantha B., a comedian and host of the podcast Choice Words with Samantha B., uh, has a new newsletter out, which we will also talk about, a former host of Full Frontal with Samantha B. Before that, of course, a beloved uh, correspondent on The Daily Show and performing at the Bushnell in Hartford on Thursday, September 21st. Um, I don't know. If, have I left anything out? Do you do oh, you did in, it. interior very, de- interior decorating? Do you have a line of a line of cupcakes or sheets or towels? I need to anything. Listen, I towel charms. I'm all in. <laughs> you got to you've got to vertically integrate in this environment. You really do. You really you have to be a master of all things. So let's talk a little bit about what is happening right now. So first of all, I'll talk a little bit about this tour. It's called Your Favorite Woman. Uh, what is. what are we dealing with besides our favorite woman? Well, you know, I um, when the show, when Full Frontal ended, I, I had to think long and hard about what it was that I wanted to carry forward from that experience of diving into like such interesting and compelling uh, subject matter. Uh, like, what did I want from that skill set and from that experience to bring forward into my new life? And And one of the things that was so important to me on the show was talking about really women's issues and uh, you know whatever it is being a woman means to you women's issues are at the forefront of my brain at all times we ended the show that the day after or the day before roe fell these are ideas and this is subject matter that is of great personal interest to me and so i wanted to do a live show i was ready to take it on the road ready to do a live version of what it is that i do in that really familiar cadence and so i've been doing a show about how little we know about our bodies the inferior sex education all of us have received and what that means for us as we age as we move through our lives like the shame and the stigma that we live with the fact that i entered perimenopause and was like i don't <laughs> Am I the only person this has ever happened to? You know, because nobody was really talking about it at all. So everything that happened in my body was just such a mystery to me. And so I thought, well, let's make that funny and put it up on a stage. <laughs> I, I had a friend who went to a Catholic boys' school, and the um, oh. the sex education was taught by the gym teacher. Uh, yeah, uh, and always. and he apparently said something uh, at the beginning where he said, "Gentlemen, the." Uh, Sperm cuts. Uh, the okay, so the egg is, uh, gentlemen. It's like a pinball machine, uh, <laughs> and that was, you know. Oh yeah, yeah like a pinball machine. <laughs> it's all I you mean, need to know, really. We, that's all you need to know. <laughs> As my own personal gynecologist says to me, they really just teach you now. They really just teach you enough about STIs so that you know that if you get one, you should be really ashamed of yourself. <laughs> um, uh, all right. So um, there's that. Uh, there's the tour. We're excited about this. Uh, it's also yeah, something you. you can do without being, without violating. You are now on double strike, as I understand it. I'm on double strike. Yeah. Yes. So do you have to have a picket sign in, in each hand or how does that work? <laughs> yeah. I just paint my body with, <laughs> with union slogans. No, actually, it, it really just sort of... I was already doing a live show, and then we are also on strike. So nobody's in violation of anything, and I get to perform live. And as long as no one tries to make it for television, we're all good. 
So we should also talk briefly about the the new newsletter, which is called Plan B. Your name is so available to do things with. It's almost unfair. It really is. It is unfair. I'm sorry. I was was just explaining to someone because they were so certain that I had changed my name from something much longer and more difficult to spell. But I'm like, no, back in in the olden days, like I have documents from the 1800s with the name B on them. So clearly somewhere back in the lore of my family. Someone was just a, a lowly beekeeper. Yeah. And they were just like, you don't even have a name. We're just going to call you Mr. Bee. <laughs> <laughs> we're not even calling you Mr. Beekeeper, which would have given a little yeah, bit no, more dignity to it. not at all. They're like, we can't be bothered giving you yeah. a full name. So make up your first name and we're just Mr. Dos. I just had assumed it was Beelzebub and they shortened it at Rikers Island. But uh, what do yeah, I know? Yeah, I mean, it could, well, I'll never tell. Yeah, exactly. I, that would be a good, good thing not to tell. <laughs> so, but, you know, the newsletter is interesting too because I think you would grant that although you are very, very genuine on stage or when you're doing full frontal or mm-hmm. or whatever, there's a persona that you're doing too. There's sure. You're not just yourself. It seems like the newsletter, we are starting to read about creepy salads you eat in airports and stuff like that. There's this kind <laughs> oh of- Oh my a, God, you've read it. <laughs> yeah, and, and I should say, I, I said, I should say every single issue of the newsletter is a different creepy salad eaten in an airport. So, uh, and it never gets repetitious either. Um, no. But you know, you know what I'm saying? It's kind of, it's a little bit of letting people in a little closer to maybe who you really are. I don't know whether that spooks you or not. I think that's true. And I think it's by design. I mean, there's no kind of move through life. I've amassed or accumulated a lot of people who are like fans, theoretically. And so I feel that it's just... There's nothing much left for me to say except the things I'm compelled to say. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, part of that is letting people know what I'm up to. Like, you know, when you do a podcast or you're doing a radio show or you're doing a live show, you have to literally let people know that it exists so that they can find it. And so if you can reach people where they live, it's just a way to kind of put pull everything together all the things that i'm doing and just blast it out and say this is what i'm doing this is what i'm interested in right now there's going to be lots of stuff coming up in the next year or so and so it's just a way to find everything you know everything is so we're just all over the place all the time and yet not on television and that's okay (laughs) (laughs) yeah and i think people also want to know or or are gratified to know because you see people on television you see people in starring roles or on stage or whatever and it looks pretty great you know and you think that must be a very stress-free existence just so to know that you have to get from iowa city to madison wisconsin or it's it's like a normal it's a pretty normal life i mean i'm we're filming a zoom right now as i'm speaking to you i can see my background it looks really neat and tidy it's not gorgeous but it is neat and tidy (laughs) but i have to assure you that six inches to the right of me is a pile of debris so (laughs) deep and i have put it all over there so that you can't see it and that one of my jobs tonight is sorting through like electrical wires that are just just like nests of wires and old teddy bears that i just have to figure out what to do with because i I literally can't take it anymore you're basically saying that you're electrocuting teddy bears and i I don't know that you want want that to get out well you know what my last name is true i just no i just saw an epa guy in a hazmat suit walk past you on the zoom (laughs) so uh, i think you've got a problem there there's no question about it pretty much so uh, i would like to talk a little bit too about well since we are talking about political satire for the whole time today. Yeah. 2016 was when Full Frontal went on the air. 
but it was like yes. February of 2016. It was. And I'm assuming that you had no idea what kind of comment was rushing towards you news-wise. Of course. How in the world? I mean, we all thought it was hilarious. We all played it for laughs. Trump coming down the escalator, the rude things that he would say, the terrible things that he started saying right off the bat. Like, right at the bottom of the escalator. <laughs> He told us who he was, <laughs> and people voted for him anyway. So no, I don't think that any of us ever really took it seriously. I, everybody reminds me that I traveled a lot the summer before the 2016 election, just talking to people out in Pennsylvania and all over all over the states. And I came back from that trip, traveling around, talking to talking to regular people. I came back from that trip and I said, Trump is going to win the election. <laughs> he's going to win because nobody out there is going to vote for him. Like, it, I think he's going to win. And then I forgot that I said that. So I did, <laughs> on some level, part of me knew that it was going to happen. And then I conveniently forgot and made no plan for him to win. And the night of our show on election night was horrifying. <laughs> well, d tell me if I have this right, because this sort of popped up for me during my exhaustive mm -hmm. research for this conversation, uh, sure. which was, it looked like maybe you had recorded a kind of high five video for the day after the election in 2016, yeah. where you're including your former boss, uh, John Stewart, high fives yeah. you and then like, actually, he's just pulled the muscle and he has to go sit down. But, yeah. but and you couldn't use it. In other words, you kind of assumed it was going to be high five day. I assumed that it was going to be high five day and it wasn't like it wasn't even high five day like look the the amazing miracle that we have done it was more high five it's over like the election season is over now we can live again because that was a grueling i mean that was a grueling election season and i think that we were i was just looking forward to getting back to life like actually making laws and changing <laughs> policy and like actually governing was seemed so exciting. You're such it a dreamer. Such a dreamer. How whimsical to imagine a government that governs. Yeah. And so we had to film the next morning, very early in the morning for that night's after, after the day after the election show <laughs> to sort of undercut it. But you, if I understand it, one reason you probably shouldn't throw out too many smoking teddy bears or whatever it is you've got, because you mm -hmm. you hung on to that and then you got to use it four years later, right? The high five video? Oh, yeah. We used it. We used it. We did use it the day after the election, but we, um, we filmed an extra piece of it that was me waking up from my beautiful dream <laughs> to understand that we were living in a nightmare. <laughs> and then we used it again. I think we used little pieces of it or we broke it up a little bit so, later on. I mean, I can't really say, use the phrase, the good thing about the Trump presidency because that doesn't really work. Sure. But in a sense, the good thing about the Trump presidency might be if you were sitting around being Samantha B, wondering, what is my purpose in life? Mm -hmm. The answer was right in front of you. Kat, we're going to play A1 right here. As we all know, restricting abortion, which is a safe and legal medical procedure, is one of Trump's favorite hobbies, along with handshake assaults, recreational swelling, and staring at the sun. But Trump doesn't believe any of that shit. He's basically an advertisement for birth control. Well, I mean, I guess these homunculi technically are, but Trump <laughs> is the spokesman. If Trump hasn't paid for at least a half dozen abortions, I will eat this blazer. Actually, I take that back. That was wildly unfair. If Trump hasn't promised to pay for at least a half dozen abortions, then not paid for them, then written back checks for them, ghosted the woman, then declared bankruptcy, and eventually made Russia pay for them, I will eat this blazer. 
That's a good. Those are good jokes. Yes, we should say the, solid. the the homunculi, which you didn't get to see because uh, this is radio, were Eric and Don Jr. You probably connected oh, those sure. dots. I mean, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I was yeah. saying to the to the listeners, uh, but our listeners are very sharp. They might have figured that out. So, um, I mean, after that, I had a lot of people contact me and say, "Really, you think only a half dozen? <laughs> I was thinking people were like, I, I was thinking forty-two, and then I was like, my actual number was thirteen, but." Right. Half dozen sounds good for TV. This is why he has so much trouble getting a lawyer now is because he didn't pay for any of the abortions. That's right. Um, so um, never let that get around about you. I wonder also, you had a lot of time during Full Frontal to think about what you were doing maybe that journalism wasn't doing. And it's interesting because right now there's been a lot of excitement about this little clip that I'm sure you've seen as well with Mehdi Hassan kind of quizzing and following up. Uh, with Vivek Ramaswamy in a way that journalists typically don't do. It almost could have been from Full Frontal or from The Daily Show. And I don't know, is there a way in which political satire in the way that you've done it is necessary partly because traditional journalism doesn't really do certain things that maybe it should do? Well, I mean, I think that when political satire, when John was really, you know, really chugging at The Daily Show, it was very people really weren't doing the kinds of things that John was. People really weren't playing tape, producing evidence that a political leader had said the opposite thing 10 times. And him just kind of producing the the tape and the proof was kind of not revolutionary, but it was uncommon. Now people are able to do it. Now it's kind of now it's something that everybody does and and it doesn't really impact anything, but at least we have that. <laughs> at least we have that. And the one thing that we did have, and the one thing that we did have at Full Frontal was the ability to say anything we wanted, the ability to process things in any way we desired, the ability to call something racist in no uncertain terms, in ways that it is very difficult to do, or shouldn't be as difficult as it is, but because journalists are held to standards <laughs> that we were not held to, or they were, their hands were tied because part of their job relies on having access to politicians and having access to the White House. And if you cross them or if you push them too hard, you can be cast out of the press rooms. Your credentials can be taken away. You can be denied access. So there is a relationship between journalism and our political leaders that feeds its, you know, they feed each other. There's a symbiosis there. That's the way it is. Yeah, um, but as you say that, I also think you're also describing a devil's bargain too. You're saying, well, journalists have to, yeah, you have yeah, to do certain things to is. get access. And see, I think that both you and John Stewart have kind of exploded that a little bit. I mean, you know, a little bit. He was I well, he was very, very revolutionary and just saying about CNN. This isn't telling you the actionable story. This isn't a good way to give people information. I mean, I think the fact that you guys are willing to go after people like me is really, really helpful because we Colin, do get very complacent about it. not coming for you, Colin. Nobody's <laughs> coming for you. Are you You're sure? Unimpeachable. Because there's a man standing right outside my studio, and I don't know who he is. I do think that it was that there is a role to play for satire, and that is saying the things, you know, in a way saying the quiet part out loud, the, the part that is that no one can say because we're just not beholden to anybody, or we weren't, and those things shift around a lot. But at the time, we really 
well, no one was going to let us in the White House anyway, so it really didn't matter. We could say anything we wanted to about, about anything that we wanted to. And then when I started doing my own show, I, I reached out to so many political leaders, like so many, and they all said no. I think because they realized that I would literally ask them anything, mm -hmm. and I would. I would ask them what was on my mind. I would say what was on my mind to them, and it was an impossible situation. They just could not allow that to happen. And then I very quickly realized that I could still say whatever I wanted. I did not actually need to be talking to them. And in some cases, it's worse to talk to them yeah. because they just talk in circles and say the same thing over and over again from a pre-prepared piece of paper. Also, you didn't have to watch their little faces fall when you said something mean. Um, yeah, you know, it's, there's a bit of, there's a freedom in it that is, uh, that can be that can be a refreshing point of view. I think another part of this, so we're talking to Sophia McLennan a little bit later in the show, and in her book, there is a chapter on Samantha Bee. Um, there is? There's a whole Samantha Bee. You're telling me you haven't gotten the galleys already? No, uh, I have not. <laughs> oh, boy. Yes. There's also, I'm writing a book, there's also going to be a Samantha Bee chapter, but it's oh, very so. different, very different, yeah. Okay. But one of the words that she uses, she talks about how you fused political satire and humor with outrage. And I think that's a very interesting description, and I think it's a pretty accurate one. There's a way in which you let your outrage kind of hang out a, a little bit. And I don't know what, whether that's a conscious decision or something you just couldn't help doing, but I'm mm -hmm. wondering what you think about it. Well, it's certainly very organic, for sure. I think it was just, you know, you reach a certain age in life, and then you're like, well, do I really have to pretend anymore? Or can I just be as mad as I want to be? And then we'll just see how long this television show lasts. And that was more <laughs> the approach was the approach that I took was, let's just say everything we want to say out loud all the time. And let the chips fall. And it was effective. I'm glad that I walked away from that experience feeling very clean. I said the things that I wanted to say. This live show is really no exception. I do the same thing, just in a different, just a different medium, really. Yes, it's a different medium, but I think that's important too. And so uh, last week on our show, we talked a little bit about this very interesting podcast called Strike Force Five, in which the mm -hmm. five hosts of uh, Late Night Talk are all collaborating together on a podcast, talking to one another and siphoning the money off or diverting it to their writers and the rest of their staff, which is... Wait, they get paid to do a podcast? <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> so, no, I wanted to just say, I mean, obviously, looking at Strike Horse Force 5, and, you know, you know either most or all of those people, and I, from what I can tell you, like most or all of those people, uh, mm -hmm. but they all are white guys, and it just... You know, to do this, uh, talk about saying the quiet part out loud, just doing this is saying... Look at us, five white guys, and that's what late night comedy is right now. Uh, I don't even know what I expect you to say about that beyond what is so obvious about it. Uh, yeah, it's it's pretty obvious, and you know, the, I think that what is what is really sad to me is that it's not really. That's a kind of a just a micro example of the contraction that is happening in our entertainment industry right now, and I do mean a contraction. There are so many opportunities being lost um much of the business is being run now by real like just like kind of accountants who are only looking at the numbers really being pleasing to shareholders in a way that i think is really counterintuitive to art and content and creativity you're seeing now that there's so much content in these libraries that is being erased off of every and all systems so there are 
just reams and classics and television shows that you simply cannot access anymore because we are being denied access to those artistic products because they're owned by a giant company, a big conglomerate that wipes the library clean because they don't want to pay residuals and they don't want to be bothered with like the legalese of airing an episode of The Detour, which is a show that I made. It, it has been erased. It doesn't exist anymore. You can't watch it. There's nowhere to see it because it is owned and it is gone for good. Well, speak for yourself. I have it on hard drive, but um, well, I appreciate that. But yeah. um, you know, there's there's so much content. Like the Netflix library went from this massive body of available titles to like nine thousand titles in in total. So it's really scary. It's really scary. And I love all those guys. They're great, but it does represent like there's a narrowing point of view, and it's happening. It's happening before our eyes. We're being led to believe that we have access to all of this incredible content, but the actual library is getting smaller and smaller and we don't even know it. Right. It's weird that you're saying all this because last week, uh, exactly a week ago, I had a conversation with Richard Brody from The New Yorker about exactly this. I mean, it's why he owns, at least how he explains to other people why he has so many shelves in his apartment, I think, and why there's just hard copies of all kinds of movies that he cares about because he just doesn't trust anybody to to take care of them. And he really now believes it almost is the consumer's duty to to take care of some of this stuff for the reasons that you're saying, because there is I agree. I completely agree with that perspective. It's just all of this stuff is going to be lost. It is going to be lost. And I, I think it's a real, it's a real warning. These gigantic multinational companies really do not care. <laughs> they don't care if we love their content. They don't care if they're expressing a point of view. They care that people think that they are. They care that people think that they're expressing points of view, but actually contraction, contraction is the name of the game. I think it's really scary. And I think, you know, I'm not like a conspiracy person. This is actually happening. Right. And the great thing about it is that they always say that they do care, uh, which is oh, how yeah. you can tell that they don't care. Sure. It's like, I love old don't. I love old movies. Turn to classic movies? No, I think I'm going to cut the staff. Uh, I'm going to oh. cut the staff and then we're going to reduce the library by 75% because right. like, it would be so weird if we right. had to pay Richard Dreyfus a residual of 25 cents. I do. <laughs> Um, I pay him every day. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't check even, for twenty five cents every day of my life. Yeah, I, it just comes right out of my credit card. I don't even notice yeah. it. Um, <laughs> it's um, well. Would you would you go back to late night? I mean, is that an attractive idea if somebody made you the right kind of offer, or was seven years know. or whatever was was that enough? I don't I don't know that I would go back to anything in the same way that I did it before. So I, I'm not sure it's I'm not sure it's on offer or in anyone's mind, and I'm okay with that if it's not. And uh, it hasn't really kind of come up for me. I'm enjoying, I'm enjoying absorbing our terrible news cycle as a civilian <laughs> versus someone who has to make comedy with it. I will say that it's calming. I'm still mad all the time about the news cycle, and uh, you'll see that if you come and watch my show. <laughs> right? I, did, but, I, did, I, did I mention the show is at the Bushnell on the 21st of September? I hope I did, and that Bushnell you can get tickets to on it. The 21st. Um, Okay. So, so we're almost know, done here. We're almost done here. But um, no, no, maybe not back to the late night television. How about Marvel Cinematic Universe? Because like with the, you're a B, there's an Ant-Man. I mean, how hard is this? I can't even how? believe your agent hasn't gotten you this already because it's and just tailor made. I know how to fly also, Colin. You don't know that about me. I, I have, have never <laughs> seen you do that. 
well, you're about that's how that's how I exit every interview. <laughs> yeah. Uh, also, the thing at the bushel, you should find out what the clearance is there because we don't want you to bump your head. Yeah. We don't uh, want to be dangerous. Wear a helmet just to be on the safe side. Okay. Um, Samantha B. So great to talk to you. Uh, so comedian, great. host of the podcast Choice Words uh, with Samantha B., former host of Full Frontal with Samantha B., and of course uh, the Samantha B. line of towels and pillowcases, which you can get that's at J.C. Right. Penny. I'm uh, passionate about towel charms. <laughs> All right. Thanks for doing this today. Thank you so much. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk to, as promised, a scholar who studies people like Samantha Bee and the people who consume political satire. When a bee lies sleeping in the palm of your hand, you're bewitched and deep in love's long-looked-after land. Where you see a sun up sky with a morning new And where the days go laughing by As love comes a-calling on you Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. So Samantha B is one of the points of many spears that have emerged really over the last few decades. There's a way in which political comedy has altered itself. Um, it used to be there's something that was done uh, in comedy clubs with people like Mort Saul or George Carlin. Then it turned into also late night one-liners, right? Everything was based on a very simple premise. Bill Clinton ate too much fast food. Bill Clinton was horny. George W. Bush was dumb. Um, these were one-liners. They were not extended analyses of anybody's political positions. But what has emerged, obviously, is a cohort of late-night comics and related performers who really look hard at political questions, uh, at questions in the news, and even maybe create a kind of news literacy for some of their viewers. Uh, and one of the people watching that whole process in, unfold is Sophia McLennan, professor of international affairs and comparative literature at Penn State University, author of numerous books, including Trump Was a Joke, How Satire Made Sense of a President Who Didn't, and Is Satire Saving Our Nation? So first of all, Sophia McLennan, welcome to our conversation. Well, thanks for having me. Maybe just we should just begin with the fact that there now have been attempts to quantify the effect of uh, people watching political comedy that that really engages with the news and maybe even informs viewers about things they didn't know about, probably especially the cohort of younger viewers. There have been attempts to sort of look at what does that mean? To what degree is political engagement increasing or decreasing? Does it 
inculcate a kind of cynical view of news that makes people less likely to vote. What do we know, just maybe run through just some of the sensibilities that scholars are developing about this topic? Well, I think the thing we want to start with is a sense of wonder that scholars are even studying this at all. <laughs> True. Because, of course, you know, as a as a lifelong nerd, we like to study everything. But it is worth noting that there really is a substantial body of research now in fields like communications, political science, and the humanities, and anthropology, and psychology, and neuroscience of a whole significant body of work that studies the social effects of satire. And this isn't just because suddenly we all wanted to study something funny. It's because satire itself has started to form a public function and started to shape uh, citizen behavior in ways we've never seen before. So that's the first thing is, wow. (laughs) (laughs) And it isn't just the nerds. Lots of polling, for example, you might recall that shortly after Walter Cronkite died, folks were asking, you know, who is your most trusted journalist? And John Stewart won. And this wasn't, you know, again, sort of academics driving this. This was just a public opinion survey. So we are responding to a sea change. And what we're seeing is uh, a number of things that are really counterintuitive because you think satire can't really be good. It seems to foster cynicism. Satire can't be good. It's making jokes. But what we find in general is a series of positive things that people who consume satire are more politically engaged. They're more politically confident. uh, They participate in uh, civic society in a far more robust way. They have higher nuance and critical thinking, a number of positive traits. Um, There are, of course, some flaws, though. So the flaws that are really fascinating have to do with the ways in which satire increases the boundaries between communities. So let's say I make a satirical joke to you, you laugh, we, sh- we share this heightened sense of community. That we know is a benefit. But the bad news is I may have made someone else's candidate look bad. And when I do that, it isn't just the joke, let's say, hypothetically about Trump. It's the way it affects his supporters who then might find themselves even more vigorously attached to defending him. So generally, satire is what we call boundary heightening humor, and it will increase those boundaries across society. So if you're worried about political polarization, which is a good thing to worry about, uh, we would say satire is contributing to that at some level. Yeah, I think one really interesting person in that context is Jordan Klepper. Jordan Klepper does field pieces for The Daily Show, and his his gig basically is to go to Trump rallies, gun rallies, I mean, kind of gun ownership rallies, stuff like that. He kind of has the look anyway of a person who might naturally turn off at one of those events. So unless you know who Jordan Klepper is and you're at a Trump rally, you don't know that he's making fun of you. I was looking for a Jordan, uh, Jordan Klepper clip to play today, and I realized so much of it is visual. It's talking to these two or three people at a Trump rally who are in these garish, outlandish uh, costumes. And he'll say, people say, this is a cult. What do you think? And they go, we're not a cult. And the, the laugh is how they look. 
But that would be the kind of thing where if you were that person and you watched later and you tuned into the fact that everything that seemed to be happening on a pretty sincere basis was, in fact, done to expose you uh, as a ludicrous freak, um, that would do nothing to knit together the severed bonds of civil society, right? Yeah. I mean, Jordan Klepper is a perfect example, really, because what Jordan Klepper's field pieces do is generally point out hypocrisy, sometimes just make, you know, certain far right supporters seem stupid. Uh, those are easy to do in part because those pieces get edited. Um, it's important for everyone to know that mm-hmm. so that occasionally, you know, we, we may be missing something that somebody had said that would have made them look better. Uh, this is a fairly old, old you know, long-standing uh, comedy routine. But the hypocrisy that Jordan points out when he does those pieces is extremely valuable because these are reframing stories that help all the rest of us who like Jordan Klepper understand why we get frustrated when we hear some of these types of positions. The issue that's interesting, like you said, is that those people he's interviewing and their allies, right, whoever kind of feels like they're in that group will get outraged. The, the critical thing to think about, though, is that that group is sort of always outraged anyway, and they tend to get worked up if you watch, say, Jesse Waters on Fox News or Greg Gutfield or, you know, Sean Hannity, they're already whipping up that audience to think that everyone hates them or disrespects them. So it's not entirely clear whether Jordan Klepper's tipping the scale a lot. So that would be the one thing to think about. Yeah, I think there's another thing to think about, which is that Klepper, and not to harp on him, we'll move on to other people, but Klepper has probably spent more time, more airtime, talking to Trump supporters, talking to the kinds of people who go to really extreme uh, gun rights shows where there's 11 acres of guns, as he said in one of his pieces, and then anybody at CNN uh, or MSNBC or NBC, ABC, CBS. In other words, one of the things a lot of people said after 2016 is if you really went to the rallies, if you really talked to people, you would realize that you were underestimating and kind of misconstruing the nature of Trump's support. Clapper really, there's just, you know, I mean, I don't know how much airtime it all adds up to, but it's hours and hours of field pieces. Yes, heavily edited field pieces. But in terms of a representation of what's really going on, you could argue that this is a kind of picture of reality that straight news isn't as good at giving you. That's absolutely true. In fact, that is the beauty of what Jordan's doing, because it isn't just that he's covering the issue. He's doing it ironically. And so one of the things that I really try to highlight in my book, Trump Was a Joke, is the concept that when the world itself is functioning ironically, what the nerds would call situational irony, when, say, the least uh, qualified person wins a job that demands the most qualifications. That's when the world itself is being ironic. It doesn't make sense. So when Jordan is able to use irony to point out the hypocrisy, it's simply far more effective than, say, if you know Jake Tapper said, oh, wow, the arguments, the pro-gun arguments don't make sense. So there's also a quality of this kind of comedy that seeps into reality. Um, I think you use a term called called laughtivism. This is kind of the idea that the average person now, when expressing him or herself, 
might choose a more comic way of doing it at a protest or a rally because they've been so saturated with this kind of comedy? Right. So one of the things that is, again, if you thought it was a bad idea for voters to watch satire news, you're going to really think it's a bad idea if uh, protest and political activism has now got this element of humor. It just seems to go against your gut instincts. Our research shows that laughtivism, that is incorporating a satirical, ironic element to activism, isn't just on the rise, it's more effective. We have data that literally shows it is, it, it makes your group more likely to have success. Uh, one of the groups that I've talked to, and that's a you know, particularly good example of this, is the group Indivisible that was started by you know, uh, some people who had worked with Obama um, after the Trump election. And what they found was that, sure, you could go and demand accountability, let's say, of your local representative, or you could host a town meeting where your representative didn't show up and put an empty suit there. Or in one case, they had a chicken they put on the podium to show that representatives weren't representing their constituencies. And then you get this great media coverage and you suddenly totally reframe your activist intentions. And you, you add this element of humor that really drives home the point you're trying to make. I think another thing that's happening that goes with this, too, is entities that are not strictly comic are more maybe sort of documentary in nature, but taking the approach that, that's been used by John Oliver, by Daily Show field pieces to a certain degree, by, by maybe by Seth Meyers. And I'm thinking of things like This Place Rules uh, or The Circus or some of Alexandra Pelosi's stuff. I, I think some of these filmmakers who might have come out of a semi-news background or at least are not making strictly comic pieces look at the stuff from The Daily Show and look at maybe some of the John Oliver stuff now and think, wow, that's a really good way to tell a story. You just point at somebody being an idiot. You let them be an idiot and you let that kind of speak for itself and you get away from these, these staged opportunities, press conferences, photo ops, stuff like that, and you just go to where people are talking a little bit more loosely. I feel as though comedy has made Docu certain kinds of news documentary stuff more comic, whether it ever planned to be or not. Does this make any sense to you? It does make sense. And there's, again, a number of factors that contribute to this, part of which is that the traditional news media has gotten somewhat unserious as well and has more scandal hype. Uh, you know, when you're watching CNN and it's like breaking, you know, every 10 seconds, there's some sort of, you know, another calamity to call our attention. Once you see that the news itself has gotten away from that Walter Cron Cronkite, more neutral, flat way of giving information, it's not surprising that satire is sort of the foil for that. It also has an unserious nature to it, but it's one which is consistently attempting to draw your attention to the issues. So that is one of the pieces. The other piece that's um, the part that I'm really enjoying working on is what this does to you cognitively, which is to say, if I process and uh, if I present news to you in a way which has this element of mirth, has this element of creative comedy, you will pay better attention to me. 
And because you're going to pay better attention, you're going to have better information recall. This is the great thing. Somebody watches John Oliver, they will remember what they learned from John Oliver much more than if Wolf Blitzer tells them. This we know for a fact. So this is the other side of it that we see, which is just it's, it's effective in communicating uh, messages to the public in ways that they will remember. Right. And I think part of that also is the emotive quality to it, not just the fact that laughing and finding something funny is an emotional experience. But if you watch John uh, John Oliver or, I mean, really the extreme version of this uh, would be John Stewart back in his his Daily Show days, where he would just freak out and start screaming about something in a way that nobody could possibly do on CNN. Anderson Cooper can't start screaming. Um, uh, and Rachel Maddow can't start screaming, not that way. But there's that visceral quality that I think is kicking different tripwires uh, in our neural structure. And, and that's specifically going to imprint and, and burn itself in and be more memorable. Well, you're absolutely right. So this is what the neuroscientists call arousal. So the part of the brain, right, where you're getting that intense affect, is related to arousal. And when you couple that with high order critical thinking, you're going to sear it into your memory better. That's that's sort of that story. So you're absolutely right. It's why most of us can remember some goofy middle school teacher who had these silly songs they'd make, they'd dance around and and use to get, you know, make us remember math rules, but we do remember them. And so we know that that there is something about Again, that that affect, uh, once you have a high affect coupled with information, um, it's highly effective for memory recall. We're going to grab a quick break here. Uh, this is fascinating stuff. We're going to come back with more of Sophia McLennan after this. Hi, I'm Ray Hartman. Season 3 of Where Art Thou is just around the corner. I'll be back on the road meeting incredible Connecticut artists. You'll hear their stories and we'll throw in a few surprises as well. Season 3 of Where Art Thou premieres June 9th on CPTV. For more, visit ctpublic.org WAT. Support provided by the Richard P. Garmini Fund at the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving, the State of Connecticut Office of Film, Television, and Digital Media, and Connecticut Humanities. Make sure you never miss the Colin McEnroe Show by subscribing to or following our podcast on any app. It is free. The senior producer of the Colin McEnroe Show is Lily Tyson, whose boss is Katie Tolarski, whose boss is Tim Rasmussen, whose boss is Mark Contreras, who reports to the U.S. Secretary of Agriculture. We don't know why. Back to the show. And a special thanks today to Kat Pastor. That was her voice that you heard here. She's our technical producer. Lily Tyson is also producing this particular episode. All right. So we're with uh, Sophia McLennan, uh, a professor of international affairs and comparative literature at Penn State University, author of numerous books, including Trump Was a Joke, How Satire Made Sense of a President Who Didn't, and Is Satire Saving Our Nation? So, Sophia, let's talk a little bit about how the form of comedy itself is changing. This is something that really fascinates me, right? John Oliver will do a 
20-minute piece, you know, on on sort of sometimes a pretty obscure public policy point, uh, you know, Medicaid coverage gaps, the Canadian federal election, the North Dakota oil boom. I'm reading some of his topics from 2015. This is even pre-Trump. And and similarly, Seth Meyers, he'll do the Closer Look segment. Those run 13 to 16 minutes. He did three of them in a row about the Fox Dominion case. So there's like 48 minutes of co- comedy coverage of the Fox Dominion case on consecutive nights. And even Trevin, Trevor Noah, a little slightly more constrained time thing, wasn't unusual for him to go eight minutes about like the Middle East. And, and some of the strategy, Sophia, seems to be adding enough jokes to a pretty serious topic so that you hold people's attention. Absolutely. I mean, there's a number of things you're seeing there that, again, are really head scratchers, which is these are professional entertainers. They came into this wanting to entertain. They started off, you know, as the class clown. These were not people who started off as political journalists. So the fact that they suddenly have this sense of mission, let's say, is interesting. So that that would be one thing to note as a real sea change in what we're seeing in terms of the satire landscape, a sense of civic duty. The other piece, like you said, is how how is it that you can keep take what should ostensibly be, people think, a comedy show and put all this serious information in? And again, one of the things you want to look at here is the fact that for many people, this is now their number one intro into some of these critical ideas. If you're like me, I, I just turned 58, you grew up watching things like David Letterman or something like that where if you were going to mention a current event, it was assuming you had already read the paper or watched the nightly news. It wasn't his job to inform you of all the details. These days, the comedians, the political comedians are often your entry point into an issue. So John Oliver, as you mentioned, he has a huge team of researchers. They take very seriously that they're going to give accurate information to the public. So these shows that sort of, you know, entire way they are designed is quite different. Hassan Minaj, when he had his show, The Patriot Act, they were really very much dedicated to covering an important topic, but doing it with comedy. And so that right there, again, is a really significant difference. But what we find is that it's highly effective and people really like it and they learn a lot. And as you pointed out, John Oliver is able to educate his audience on issues they wouldn't have known anything about or even necessarily sort of found themselves drawn to. And so the nerdy way of describing this is issue priming. You get people interested in an issue through the comedy, because if I said to you, I'm going to show you a 20 minute YouTube video on how awful say, you know, assisted living places are, you'd say, no, (laughs) I'm not doing that. But if John Oliver does it, you learn something because you know that he'll do it in a way that gives you, again, that that element of pleasure. I think there are some real questions about how much they're going to be allowed to do. There's a little bit of a shut up and dribble uh, version of this in comedy. Obviously, Jon Stewart has become a more serious person. Uh, his latest iteration is a much less strictly comic 
version of what he used to do. But even during that time, and they had that rally for reality or whatever it was in, in Washington. And yeah, they're, most of them kind of break comic character. Um, Trevor Noah started doing this thing where he would just talk to the audience during resets and, and not necessarily be funny, but just be very real. And it's a risk for a comedian, right? A comedian makes his or her living and his or her bones on what they can do in the world of funny. And there's some people who might say, you know what? I don't want to hear you be serious. That's not what I'm – you're not interesting to me in that way. Can you say a little bit of your thoughts about that? Well, first of all, I like to remind people that Ben Franklin was pretty funny. <laughs> I, saw, and... I saw a couple of his comedy sets in Vegas and he was extremely funny. I can confirm that. <laughs> This country has an extremely long tradition of very serious leaders also moving into the realm of satire to make their point. So that would be one good example. But Samuel Clemens also testified before Congress. So this isn't as though this is a brand new thing, but you're absolutely right. It is new in its extent. So what what I think is fascinating is that sort of anxiety. Well, oh, no, the comedians are not being funny anymore because they're so busy being political. This We've seen sort of articles about this coming out. I'm tired of these shows. They're not funny. Well, the reality is there's plenty of audience for them. There are people out there that like what we call effortful thinking. They want comedy that's smart and they want comedy that helps educate them. And they like the fact that the comedians are sincere. They're not just making a joke because they can. And so we have this uh, society today where people are saying, you know, I actually prefer a comedian who is serious about playing a positive role in society. And you can see this not just in the space of comedy, but in celebrities overall, right? What is Matt Damon doing? He did a really funny piece for the water organization where he says he's not going to use a toilet until you know <laughs> this entire community has you know clean drinking water, these kinds of bits, George Clooney, etc. You have a number of celebrities now so-called crossing the line. So I think we need to just get used to the fact that folks are recognizing that they can't be quiet over major uh, political issues, whether it's the environment or our or the strength of our democracy. So I think you're right that people worry over it. But the reality is this shift has taken place and there's nothing that's going to stop it. You know, Sophia McLennan, we're going to have to stop here, but I just for time reasons, but I hope you will come back. I believe there's another big election coming up. So it might be fun. As, and as you can tell, this is an area of great interest to me, too. So uh, Sophia McLennan, professor of international affairs and comparative literature at Penn State, author of numerous books, including Trump was a joke, how satire made sense of a president who didn't. And is satire saving our nation? Thank you so much for spending time with me today. Thank you for having me. 